0: as I'll ever be.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Mormons and Drugs Podcast, a weekly podcast wherein I discuss the shockingly frequent intersections of Mormonism, magic and drugs. I am Cody, the dishwasher, a history <laughs> fan <laughs> and your ranty host. Uh, joining me is my co-host and producer Moth Doula.
0: Thank you, Cody Niconi.
1: Mm-hmm. How's your uh, delicious how's your drink? Spiked kombucha <laughs>
0: Yeah it's for all of you. I have
1: chose um, a great s- podcasting snack.
0: stomach issues now for all of our one <laughs> listener. You're welcome. <laughs> My spiked kombucha is fantastic.
1: How's how's your day? <laughs> Not uh, spiked kombucha, mm-hmm. so it's fantastic. Sorry. Oh, what? <laughs> <clears throat> um, so, if you're into continuity and a relatively clear linear timeline, I suggest you start back at episode one and move your way forward. But for those of you that uh, throw caution to the wind, here's a quick review. During the last few weeks, there's been a serious lack of drugs in this podcast that happens to have drugs in the name. And we've discussed the Smith family in some depth. The middle son of this family, Joseph Smith Jr., being the alleged prophet and patriarch of the Mormon religion. We've covered the union of Lucy Mack and Joseph Smith Sr., along with the occult Christian worldview of the 18th and 19th century America. Uh, we hit the family's interests and in occult toolkits related to the, uh, that antebellum worldview. Also, the financial disaster that left the young family in destitution and the traumatic leg injury at a young age and how those experiences, uh, all shaped young Joseph Smith into the teenage magician he became. And finally, in our last episode, we discussed Joe the Teenage Witch summoning treasure (laughs) guardians that he later retconned into angelic messengers and then got into some of Joe's magical mentors and his subsequent antics as a fledgling sorcerer.
0: Nephi (laughs) Moroni.
1: It's Moroni.
0: Moroni. Moroni. (laughs) Moroni. (laughs) Nephi Moroni.
1: Moron-i. Remember that. Moron that's how I always remembered it am I moron am I got it yeah
0: <laughs> the white Native American
1: well he was well he was originally a a, a white Native American treasure guardian that and slaps the, people and then he became Nephi and then he became the angel Nephi and then the angel Moroni it's very confusing <laughs> so without further ado we come to the 1826 trial of Joseph Smith <laughs> <laughs> which uh, inspired or perhaps demanded the conning magicians flip to religion so it is now 1825 just two years after joe began claiming to have communed with uh, treasure guardians and his discovery of ancient gold plates inscribed with what he later called reformed egyptian uh joe jr and the rest of the smith family are living around the palmyra manchester new york area and they are still renting land and avoiding creditors while operating equally as ceremonial magicians, farmhands, and sometimes school teachers for hire. In around the fall of 1825, a man named Josiah Stowell came to the same Manchester area to visit his son Simpson and uh, to inquire locally about the young seer Joe Jr., whom at just 19 years old was already building a reputation in the area as a gifted occultist. So, like, this guy from the Stoll town over. Was? Yeah, Stoll came to the Manchester area to visit his okay. son, Simpson.
0: Homer Simpson.
1: <laughs> Him? No? Okay. no? No, no. Yeah. Different yeah. Simpson. Uh, but he, he uh, apparently at 19 had already, like, picked up a reputation that a guy from a couple towns over had heard about him and was like, hey, I'm in the area. So, like, have you heard about this kid Joe? Uh, Rather infamous already at 19, and it's about to get a lot worse. Impressive. So, Josiah Stowell had himself spent the previous summer in northeast Pennsylvania, engaged with a group of money diggers looking for a lost or magically hidden Spanish silver mine. Uh, of course, to no avail. <laughs> this uh, operation was originally scried or informed by a woman named Odal is an awesome name for a woman or anyone uh who claimed to possess the power of seeing underground that there was great treasures concealed in the hill
0: okay uh, this woman could see underground
1: uh yeah she was doing the same thing that joseph and the money is this the same
0: were. lady who had the brother that had the land that <laughs> no. had the special pretty rock that everyone's fighting so over? that
1: was that Dick. was the chase family okay uh willard chase was the guy who had the well that Joseph found his magic rocket. That pretty
0: sparkly.
1: rock. Uh, his sister was also a gifted seer right. who had a shiny green rock that Joseph sometimes borrowed and used, which is how he kind of conned Willard Chase into giving him the magic stone out okay. of as well.
0: Odal is different. Different lady. Different lady. There's a lot of
1: people doing this, then. Yeah. A lot of people. Okay.
0: So, Odal, which I agree is a cool name.
1: <laughs> uh, and so, essentially, the, the whole disaster in northeast Pennsylvania ends with uh one of the money diggers murdered to appease the treasure spirit apparently what yeah <laughs> possibly uh, interestingly as a side note to this joe junior was uh, was rumored to have already been involved with these money diggers um and possibly with this murder in particular uh one publication read After the company was organized, a second communication was received by Joseph Jr. from the other world advising the treasure seekers to suspend their operations as it was necessary for one of the company to die before the treasure could be secured. Harper, the peddler, who was murdered soon after near the place where the Catholic cemetery in this borough is now located, was one of the original members of the company, and his death was regarded by the remainder of the band as a provincial occurrence, which the powers had brought about for their special benefit. The death of Harper having removed the only obstacle in the way of success, the surviving members recommenced operations and signed an agreement giving the widow Harper the one half of one third of all treasures secured. So, huh. while this is probably a bit of, you know, proto yellow journalism, as I've never been able to substantiate this, it, this won't be the final time the Smith family is weirdly associated with the mysterious murder <laughs> before they started the Mormon Church. But officially, Joe had nothing to do with Stowell and his money diggers until the fall of 1825 after this murder. This is just kind of a, a rumor that popped up. After Wait, was the Stowell
0: involved with that murder?
1: Yes. And so this is what happens afterwards. Despite this murderous debacle the year before, the still faithful Stowell traveled across the newly constructed Erie Canal, uh, likely at the written suggestion of his son Simpson, and was brought to the home of the Smiths. Uh, speaking again to Joe's reputation in the area, Lucy Mack said that Stowell came with the view of getting Joseph to assist him in digging for a silver mine, on account of having heard that he possessed certain keys by which he could discern invis- things invisible to the natural eye. Stowell, uh, hoping to get a better fix on this Spanish mine that he first heard of by the scryer Odell, invites Joe Jr. and Sr. over to his son Simpson's house for a demonstration, where Joe apparently gave a detailed description of Stowell's farmstead, including the placement of the barn, the outhouse, you know, etc. He just gave him the layout, apparently, uh, in the form of cold reading. Uh, We'll get into... How I think he did this a little later when we get into more of the neighborhood (laughs) uh, testimonies. But for the time being, Josiah Stoll is apparently so impressed that he offers Joe Jr. and Senior two of 11 shares in his next money digging expedition with wages of $14 a month, uh, which for reference, the workers that just built the new Erie canal that he went across were paid $12 a month. Uh, so really good wages for for digging. Mm-hmm. Uh especially occult digging like that. Uh good wages for a nineteen year old at the time. Lucy Mack claims that Joe Jr. refused at first, but uh at the offer of such high wages and profit sharing the uh fervent insistence of Stowell, uh the two Joes finally consented. At the end of October eighteen twenty five, The Joes make their way to Bainbridge with Stowell and the company of the money diggers, making their way eventually to the spot Stowell had been digging at the summer prior, uh, just above the property of a man named Isaac Hale. This is the father of Emma Hale, Joseph's future first wife. So keep this family in mind. Uh, On November 1st, 1825, the group issued an article of agreement a contract of sorts for the division of any found treasure or lost mines. Uh this contract includes Isaac Hale and two additional Hale men as beneficiaries of one of these 11 shares. And as the company was digging on what was essentially his property and boarding at his large house for the next 17 days, so that's why a bunch of the Hales got shares in this digging operation even though they didn't really do anything. Um so Hale is being cited as saying, <laughs> fuck me. Hale is cited as being at first a little deluded about the digging while boarding, uh, the property. As we've, as we'll see, however, Hale's delusion quickly dissipated with the young car and artist Joe setting his sights on Isaac's very beautiful and available 21 year old daughter. So it's a little older, but. Joe apparently took a liking to her instantly, and after 17 days of not finding treasure, Isaac Hale was immediately uh, disenchanted with Joe's (laughs) abilities. On the first day of the expedition, uh, Josiah Stoll takes Joe Jr. to the dig site from the previous year, which, by the way, was approximately 120 feet across and 20 feet deep. Uh, you You could essentially drop a small house into this thing. So was no small amount of digging. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Joe props uh, pops his, ju- his trusty stone into his uh, handy-dandy hat, and he scries for the, the lost mine. Joe confirms the original work of the woman named Odal and peeps out the location of what he guesses is about a ton of gold left by Spanish miners. In traditional money digging fashion, the silly diggers from the year before had broken one of the rules and the treasure magically slipped down the hill uh, that they were excavating.
0: It went down further.
1: Mm -hmm. Over the next two weeks, the company digs four additional sites, three to the south of the big hole and one directly east of it. After a while, Joe becomes frustrated and sacrifices a lamb in his uh, same fashion as we've discussed in the last episode, likely using that ceremonial dagger we've mentioned in the past few episodes, too. Right, right.
0: Uh,
1: quote, their digging in several places was in compliance with Peeper Smith's revelations, who would attend to with his peep stone in his hat and his hat drawn over his face and would tell them how deep they would have to go. But when they would find no trace of chest or money, he would peep again and weep like a child and tell them the enchantment had removed it on account of some sin or thoughtless word. Finally, the enchantment came s- became so strong that he could not see, and so the business was abandoned. Unquote.
0: They're being paid this whole time.
1: Yeah, and he's getting paid better than like professional uh, laborers at the time.
0: Better than a lot of people nowadays.
1: Uh, well, that would be... So f- I don't know. We'll have to do it another time.
0: It's only $14 an hour.
1: No, $14 a month. Oh. <laughs> Not quite. No, never mind. Um, oh wait, I did it yesterday. So fifty dollars was approximately thirteen sixty in today's money. So, I mean, money stretched a lot farther back. Then, oh yeah. But, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, fourteen would be a third of that. So you're looking at maybe 400 dollars in today. Four hundred fifty dollars a month ish
0: considering your rent was a nickel it's okay
1: <laughs> i guess so <laughs> uh so <clears throat> after 17 days the group disbands everyone heading home except joseph jr who hangs on to the credulous and financially generous josiah stole like a leech and for the next four months joe lives at the stole's property scrying for the man when he calls for it and helping him with farm work at a rate of 14 dollars a month Again, which was a relatively high rate for somebody not acting as a skilled laborer. One contemporary at the time said Stowell's sons, quote, "...plainly saw their father squandering his par- property in the fruitless search for hidden treasures, and saw the youthful seer had unlimited control over the, illusion, over the illusions of their sire." Unquote. Local neighbors had their suspicions about Joe as well, not just the Stowell's relatives. Quote, he had a stone into which, when placed in a hat, he pretended to look and see chests of money buried in the earth. He was also a fortune teller, and he claimed to know where stolen goods probably went too well. Hmm. That was a nice, uh, shady yeah. backhand of, I think this guy just stole shit and then, uh. Tells you. Went back and was like, oh, I found it. <laughs> uh, I think our kids do that
0: occasionally. <laughs> Um this is
1: the youngest I can think of. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. And so while the following events are hotly debated between Mormon apologists and Mormon, you know, actual historians, they have been, in my opinion, very satisfactorily reconstructed by Mormon historian Dan Vogel. And the, this next bit is largely pulling from his work. So on the 20th of March, 1826, a warrant is issued by one Peter G. Bridgman, who is Josiah's nephew, against Joe Jr. for being a disorderly person and an imposter, essentially a con man. Constable Philip DeZang apprehends the now 20-year-old Joe and brings him before Judge Albert Neely of the Bainbridge court system. Quote, "Uh, All jugglers and all persons pretending to have skill in physiognomy palmistry or like crafty science or pretending to tell fortunes or to discover where lost goods may found shall be deemed and a judged disorderly persons uh, this is from the new york at it's time so now in the 19th century much like today there were laws on the books that were usually unenforced uh, similar to like jaywalking today you had to really be an asshole to get in trouble for commonplace 19th century interests like palmistry so like this was on the books and you could get arrested for it but you really had to be pulling and cons yeah. to actually get arrested
0: you had to be hurting people
1: yeah so
0: what year was this
1: this was in 1826
0: okay okay so a year after joseph stole josiah stole yeah so
1: town. so f- you know Just pulling a random example, say, you know, outright conning a credulous farmer for over half a year at this point, you know, for just a random example, was something that would actually get you arrested. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Even though everybody seemed to be doing this at the time. You know, American courts of the 1820s didn't really care if you believed in or practiced money digging. They cared if you were an imposter embedding oneself uh, in a credulous community with the explicit intent of milking them out of money and resources. Like Joe was doing, mm-hmm.
0: so he got arrested. And yeah, went to court. Uh,
1: yeah, it was f- it was for this reason. Uh, as we're about to see, that Joe's main defense in this case was hilariously enough to prove his legitimacy as a scryer and seer. Uh, he didn't. He just kind of doubled down. Yep. and did that magic Joe pivot. He <laughs> just like, yeah, I know I got caught doing this thing, but it's actually really righteous of me that I do it. <laughs> Um, this is a thing that like by the end of this this will be no surprise when when something anything happens to joe and he just kind of pivots and is like actually you're not thinking about this in the right perspective let me <laughs> change that for you uh <laughs> so albert neely took joe into what appears to have been a preliminary hearing that was open to the public of bainbridge which was a town consisting of one store and one tavern so needless to say uh uh, the local teenage con artist finally getting his due mm-hmm. was the best entertainment. One was likely to see on the 20th okay. of March. That All day. right. So everyone was there. So every- There's apparently a lot of people there. Cool. Uh, you could even imagine there being snacks and beer being passed <laughs> around. Uh, I'm not joking, but yeah, right like, now. Yeah. Country court was uh, kind of a joke at that point. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> um, the fact that a good many people around Bainbridge attended this hearing will be important towards the end. Yeah. While this was a preliminary hearing, uh, Neely nevertheless had the authority to sentence Joe to a hard labor camp for up to six months while awaiting court uh, a court of special sessions like a re-hearing, which would consist of two additional circuit court judges. It may be worth mentioning that this camp was a place where whipping was an explicitly sanctioned form of behavior correction. (laughs) So, Young Joe was in some deep shit, to say the least. (laughs) Seven witnesses were called before the hearing josiah stole joseph senior and a one jonathan thompson bearing witness in joe jr's defense wait what? so stole so josiah stole the guy he was conning. yeah him, joe senior his dad
0: oh his dad and
1: a one jonathan thompson who just kind of knew joe and as a money digger but i'm guessing a friend Mm-hmm.
0: okay but you said seven that's three
1: yeah so while uh He's left off the official record from the judge. It seems likely that Peter Bridgman, the guy who issued the warrant, probably testified against Joe, uh, along with two of Stoll's sons and a man identified in the docket only as McMaster. Um, and these all these guys gave you know the more damning testimonies.
0: Stoll's sons mm-hmm. did
1: two of his sons.
0: I Peter thought Stoll was is his, his brother, nephew
1: too. So like, oh, Bridgman's his buddy. Yeah. Okay. Bridgman is is Josiah Stoll's nephew. He oh. issued the warrant, and two of his sons testify to like verify uh, uh, Peter Bridgman's original.
0: And then McMaster, whoever that is, yeah, and oh, whoever so, McMaster is. So Stoll is pissed at him.
1: No, Stoll is still like totally in Joe's on Joe's side.
0: Okay, so Bridgman and the sons feel like they're probably Joe is instigating all of this nonsense that their father does?
1: Well, they, they see him living on the property, right. like being paid a right. good wage. They just see their – and he's not producing anything. Right. So they just are like, hey, this guy's an, obviously a con artist, and right. he's milking our, our dad, Peter our dad. Bridgman, his, right. his uncle. Right. But the, his sons and his nephew get together, issue a warrant against Joe. They Let's, show up yeah, with okay. some guy, McMaster, to testify in, uh,
0: against, against Joe, Joe.
1: And Joe – uh, this guy Peter Thompson, who seems to be a friend, money digger,
0: and J- Joe his dad,
1: Singer. and uh, and Josiah stole the guy. Being uh, all this is over, uh, he shows up to defend Joe as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so interesting. I'll
1: be. I'm going to kind of piece this out, uh, witness by witness, because it, it gets a little it, it gets fun towards the end. Okay. Um, starting with Joe himself, Neely the the judge said prisoner examined says that he came from the town of Palmyra and had been at the house of Josiah stole in Bainbridge. Most of the time since had small part of time been employed in looking for mines, but the major part had been employed by said stole on his farm and going to school that he had a certain stone, which he had occasionally look, I'm I'm reading this as it is like his notes. So some of this is a little weird. Uh, That he had a certain stone which he had occasionally looked at to determine where hidden treasures in the bowels of the earth were. That he professed to tell in this manner where gold mines were at a distance underground and had looked for Mr. Stowell several times and had informed him where he could find these treasures. And Mr. Stowell had been engaged in digging for them. That at Palmyra, he pretended to tell by looking at this stone where coined money was buried in Pennsylvania, and while at Palmyra had frequently ascertained in that way where lost property was of various kinds, that he had occasionally been in the habit of looking through this stone to find lost property for three years at this point. Um, A lot of apologists say he was only in this for a month, and Joseph himself will claim that he didn't do this very long.
0: Wait, at three years at what place?
1: At this point, uh, uh, t- Joe testifies to the judge that he himself he himself says to a judge, "I've been in the pra- in the practice of money digging professionally for three years at this
0: point." Oh, okay, not okay. He didn't mean at the stole property. Yeah, he's only been there a year, but yeah, I did write in my notes that he had been okay,
1: okay. Uh, but that of late, he had pretty much given it up on account of it injuring his health, especially his eyes, making them sore. Oh that he did not solicit business of this kind and had always declined having anything to do with this business. Unquote. We'll see. This is just utter nonsense.
0: So he did it for three years. It really, really hurt his eyes. And so he yeah. stopped. Yeah. Got it.
1: He, he won't, actually. He won't. He won't, won't stop. He keeps doing it. He won't it. stop. No. <laughs> so, oh. <laughs> despite everything <laughs> Oh, no, happens, no, no. okay, yeah, I got he's that. He's not going to stop.
0: Yeah, no. Yeah. Just like he only did it for like what he said before that he did it for a year.
1: Mm-hmm. And this is just what he says to the judge. Uh, Note that this court testimony directly contradicts Joe Jr.'s recounting of the events nearly a decade later when he said, quote, After I went to live with him stole, he took me with the rest of his hands to dig for a silver mine. At which I continued to work nearly a month without success in our undertaking. And finally, I prevailed with the old gentleman to cease digging yeah. after it. Hence arose the very prominent story of my having been a money ticker. Unquote. Oh, that's right.
0: He only did it for yeah, a month.
1: He did it for a month.
0: That's right. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> we talked
1: a decade about later when he's reflecting and trying to like visibly distance himself from right, his early from career. all that. That's how he just kind of writes all this off. Uh, Clearly, Joe would rather the world had forgotten this incident, but as we will see, with what was likely the majority of Bainbridge watching this trial, (laughs) they very much did not. Anyways, one attendee uh, to this trial, William Purple, who is like the best, he took a lot of notes during this trial um, and later published them and was questioned on it. Uh, he elaborated on Judge Albert Neely's notes mentioning that Joe at one point told the court about his seer stones origin story and after finding a white stone with the aid of a neighborhood seer likely Sally Chase the Chase, she was probably helping him Joe carried it to the creek washed it wiped it dry and sat down on the bank placed it in his hat and discovered that time place and distance were annihilated that all intervening obstacles were removed and that he possessed one of the attributes of deity, an all-seeing eye, unquote. Uh, And at some point, Purple says that Joe even displayed his favorite seer stone before the court, uh, saying, quote, it was, before the quote, (laughs) before the court, it was about the size of a small hen's egg in the shape of a high insteped shoe. It was composed of layers of different colors passing diagonally through it. It was very hard and smooth, perhaps from being carried in the pocket. And this is that brown seer stone that he used the entire time he translated the Book of Mormon as we'll see later. But this was this little brown stone, not the white one he talked about. This little brown stone was his favorite that he kept with him his entire life, probably. That's
0: the one I did the artwork on. Okay.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> So uh, if you've listened to the last few episodes, you'll recognize that Joe is doubling down here to try and escape a very hard Princeton sentence by displaying before the New York court uh, the very stone with which he will translate from Egyptian, the supposed golden plates, which comprised what uh, became later known as the Book of Mormon. And it was the same that he'd been using for, you know, by his own admission, at least three years to perform cons around the New York area at this point. So following Joe, uh, William Purple states that Joe Sr. took the stand, so to speak, uh, reaffirming what Joe Jr. had just said, giving additional anecdotes of Joe's being a legitimate scryer. Uh, Josiah Stowell, in defense of Joe Jr., who came after Joe Sr., Josiah Soul Sworn, this is from Neely's notes again, says the prisoner had been at his house something like five months, had been employed by him to work on the farm part of the time, that he pretended to have the skill of telling where hidden treasures in the earth were by means of looking through a certain stone. The prisoner had looked for him sometimes, once to tell him about money buried in Bend Mountain in Pennsylvania, once for gold on Monument Hill, and once for a salt spring, and that he had positively knew the prisoner could tell and did possess the art of seeing those valuable treasures through the medium of said stone. That he found the word intelligible at Bend and Monument Hill as prisoner represented it. That prisoner had looked through said stone for a Deacon Adleton for a mine and did not exactly find it, but a bunch of unfinished words of ore which resembled gold. He thinks that prisoner had told by means of this stone where a Mr. Bacon had buried money. Uh, And that he and the prisoner went in search of it. That prisoner said it was in the root of a certain stump five feet from the surface of the earth. And that with it would be found a tail feather. That said stole and prisoner thereupon commenced digging and found a tail feather. The money was gone, but he supposed the money moved (laughs) down. That prisoner did offer his services, that he never deceived him, that the prisoner looked through the stone and described Josiah Stole's house and outhouses while at Palmyra in Simpson Stoll's correctly, that he had told him about a painted tree with a man's head painted upon it by means of said stone, that he had been in the company of prisoner, d- of prisoner digging for gold and had much implicit faith in the prisoner's skill. So, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I really happened? liked how it was the judge's notes and he from the beginning was like said that he's pretending. pretending
1: he's just pretending <laughs> um, yeah I, can, <laughs> I got this kid <laughs> there's a there's a bunch of content uh, contention over a few things in this statement one of them being like uh that he searched for a treasure of mr bacon uh, most historians try and find a mr bacon in the local census records. Uh-huh. I think he's referring to Francis Bacon, who, according to kind of uh, occult folklore at the time, Uh Francis Bacon apparently made his way to America and buried a bunch of treasure all around New York. From where? Fra- from England, he was like a Francis Bacon was a famous uh, mathematician and explorer. Okay, from England, and he apparently made his way to America and buried a bunch of treasure. Wow. It was really famous among money diggers at the time, and I think he's referring to Francis Bacon. I think okay. most historians. So are- he
0: had read about this, possibly.
1: Yeah, and it was like he a did seem to circulated- read about myth this like, kind of stuff um, pirate treasure and okay. a lot of money diggers were looking for lost spanish mines pirate treasure mm-hmm. francis bacon's gold mm-hmm. and a bunch of like okay. lost manuscripts but it was uh, these were like the common things everybody looked for okay i think historians are <laughs> just i don't think there's a mr bacon to look for i think mr bacon is francis bacon reading Stole's account is kind of sad to me that this guy is testifying in a public hearing about this and just cannot see how easily he's being duped. Uh, this tail feather thing, for example, yeah. you know, it just lo- it's like an, oh, look over there, while he's shoveling dirt. And yeah. you- <laughs> it's so easy to do the simple things that is are being done.
0: Which, I mean and it it says a lot of the fact that like his nephew and sons and like all these close family members probably know that he's a little eccentric, and obviously mm-hmm.
1: you and know when we get to Martin Harris, we'll see how Stowell was joseph's like training ground, mm-hmm. and then he finds mm-hmm. a really rich guy right Martin Harris, and yeah. he's already got kind of how he yeah. knows how to do this yeah we'll see these tropes come back kind of, yeah I'm sure. um, you know the so the so the difference between cold and hot reading. Uh is like cold reading is what those men spiritualists did on t v during the nineties It' was just like you
0: you walk into a room and you're like, I feel
1: yeah you know, somebody has a mom with the name that starts with M and then yeah. someone finds oh, My mom uh <laughs> okay. you're just throwing out cold reading is just cold. you have no information about any of these people, but you're gonna let them come to their own conclusions right. and you just put out a bunch of random it's statements kind of until like they that catch on
0: that. It's like that FBI way of catching a liar,
1: mm-hmm. but they're, they use very interrogators similar. use a lot of these techniques right. to get people to give information they don't mean to give.
0: Right. So it's very yeah okay. And it's, hot
1: reading is another technique of that where you have information about them. So like okay. say somebody who knows how to do this, got you it. could have a plug in your ear, and somebody like there was a pastor who got caught for this. Mm-hmm. They would uh, at the front gate like ask you to fill out a questionnaire Mm -hmm. and then the questionnaire would go to a prompter who would be reading this information to the pastor who you just met yeah but he knew all these things about me right that's hot reading yeah and then there's like basic mentalism techniques that were really popular with occultists at the time where it's just like low grade hypnotism and you're kind of prepping somebody to take the cold reading or the hot reading seriously it's It's shockingly not hard to, like, learn the Mm -hmm. techniques of this. And Joe is clearly, like, working this out. Yeah. Um, Because you
0: just need to not have any morals or... (laughs)
1: Yeah, we'll see see those get a little flimsy. Joe later in his career as a prophet employed the use of spies and informants as well. And these uh, people reported the intimate and personal goings on of his parishioners. And he then used that information to give himself an air of infallibility and like near omniscience, which in turn gave him a great deal of power over his congregation, which is like what I was just talking about. It's that form of hot reading Mm -hmm. where you just make yourself seem otherworldly with mm-hmm. things you know
0: mm-hmm.
1: um and a lot of the people that were his informants later rep- were like hey i this is what he used to do sure. and i watched him do it and i got disenchanted mm-hmm. and like left the church yeah. and so they're talk about it this is how we know that he was doing it later and likely from what it seems he started doing this as a teenager we'll touch more on that in later episodes but uh, needless to say while traditionally uneducated joe was incredibly intelligent and resourceful <laughs> It seems uh, we see here Joseph's early development of those skill sets, like I said. Uh, Joe is clearly developing his narratives regarding the deceased spirits of Native American treasure guardians as well. Again, this is uh, rather damning and is is coming out in Joseph's defense, ironically enough. Uh, this is Judge Neely's notes from the Jonathan Thompson guy. So okay. we're, we're basically going through all of the... All the judge's notes and
0: the defense, okay.
1: Says that prisoner was requested to look for chest of money, did look, and pretended to know where it was. And prisoner, Thompson, and yeomans went in search of it. That Smith arrived on the spot first uh, was at night. That Smith looked in hat while there, and while dark, told how the chest was situated. After digging several feet, struck something sounding like a board or plank, prisoner would not look again pretending that he was alarmed on account of the circumstances relating to the trunk being buried which came all fresh to his mind that the last time he looked he discovered distinctly two indians who buried the trunk that a quarrel ensued between them and that one of said indians was killed by the other and thrown into the hole beside the trunk to guard it as he supposed thompson says that he believes in the prisoner's professed skill and that the board he struck his spade upon was probably the chest But on account of an enchantment, the trunk kept slipping away from under them while digging. That notwithstanding, they continued constantly removing dirt, yet the trunk kept uh, about the same distance from them, unquote. Uh, So, again, like the thing Lucy Mack talked about, Joseph loved to spin yarns about Native Americans to a bunch of racist white Americans who thought they knew what a Native American culture was like. Mm -hmm. Um, And, of course, they transposed their uh you know methods of money digging. Like he he one of them had to murder the other and right. make it a spirit guardian that guards this treasure and that's why we can't find mm-hmm. it. This appealed greatly to <laughs> to New Yorkers at the time.
0: I like how he mentioned
1: that he got there first. Yeah. And again, like you get these guys a little hopped up you never you hand out some beer, maybe the beer's laced with something <sighs> You get them a little worked up. It's night. It's scary. There's a full moon. You're dealing with scary Native American spirits excited. that are angry. Mm-hmm. They get excited and their spade hits like a root and they just freak out. It's just – I'm not – like I know I know people prefor- who perform magic are very serious about it. And I've performed magic that is very uh, experientially real like to me subjectively. Mm-hmm. And there's times when I hear about magic. And I'm like, this is just a con. Yeah, <laughs> this like, is not – yeah. Come on.
0: It's really upsetting. <laughs>
1: um, we're running out of time, I guess. this I'm taking too long to do this. So uh, oh. I, I'm going to cruise through this final part of the episode where we uh, uh, get to the uh, prosecu- prosecution's okay, well, testimonies.
0: Oh, well, we did stole his dad and so Thompson. Okay. So now Bridgman?
1: uh so after hearing from joe's defenders neely seems to have come forward with at least three additional witnesses he he leaves out one of them Uh, but these include arid Stoll and the man identified as mcmaster as we'll probably see peter Bridgman, the guy who issued the warrant in the first place all of whom seem to have seen joe's cons for what they were Uh, all saying that they walked away from joe's apparent tricks with disgust uh, they all kind of unanimously were just like, he tried to con me too, and I could easily see it was a con. And this guy's gross, and he's taking advantage of my uncle or my dad or whatever. Reconstructed again from Dan Vogel, Judge Neely is not impressed by the examination of Joe or his defense and officially declares Joe guilty. Since this is such a strange case, he decides to call a court of special sessions anyway and has constant DeZang notify two other judges to hold the new hearing. Uh, bef- ah. Before Joe is taken to a hard labor camp by DeZang, perhaps the sympathy of the young, uh, for the young kid, or maybe even outright bribery, Joe Jr. is, quote, designedly allowed to escape, unquote. <laughs> what was known at the time as leg bail, uh, otherwise just jumping bail or skipping town with no intention of making it to trial. Very likely Constable DeZang was bribed by either Joe Senior or Joe Jr. Mm-hmm. with something. And mm-hmm. he was oh man, he just he said he was going to hard labor camp. He never made it there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so he's, you know, not liable for that. Anyway, when Joe doesn't show up to court, DeZang is called in again, like same constable, and with Midimus or a court warrant, rearrests Joe and brings him back to Rainbridge. At this point So they find him. Yeah, they do. They me- say immediately. Where? Um, I think he was still with Stowell. I think he just went back. He just to- <laughs> went back. <laughs> I think so. Okay. Um, at this point, Joe drops the pious defense of occult okay. legitimacy and changes his plea to guilty. Oh,
0: okay. likely
1: as a form of like brokering a deal, mm-hmm. uh, which I think means he probably just bribed Judge Neely as well.
0: <laughs> oh,
1: and Judge Neely basically let him off, agreeing that he stay out of Bainbridge for a given period of time. He's like, I don't care where you go. Stay the fuck out of Bainbridge. Okay. Pull your con somewhere else. Okay. If you're going to do anything in Bainbridge, like they probably just came to an arrangement. Yeah. Uh, which is, I'm this is speculation. This was reconstructed from uh, court records by Dan Vogel. Yeah. I think this is the most likely scenario. And also, I, it's I mean, the most reasonable for he didn't, how court proceedings uh, in backwoods like this happened at the time.
0: He didn't like hurt anyone. He didn't kill anyone. He didn't, technically steal he just conned someone out of money and he mm-hmm. didn't do farm labor so I could see that they were maybe went to him and was like hey kid yeah turn your shit around exactly this is your chance yeah Um. get out of here come back when you're not you know
1: Exactly. Dicking around. And the whole town Which watched is, this happen, yeah. too. And they knew – they he, he was supposed to go to this and mm-hmm. this happened and he's, he's just yeah. back over here. Yeah. Everybody, like, watched this happen. Yeah. And, you know, of course – of course, the deal was that you get out of Bainbridge, and of course, stop money digging.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Like you said, it was hurting your eyes. Blah blah blah. You and your dad give this very pious defense that mm-hmm. you know, like, oh, I'm sorry, we got sucked into this. Right. You know, like, it's this miraculous gift from God that He's given me. I need to figure out a better way of using it. They give this like really, really defense.
0: But people are getting pissed off.
1: Yeah. Stop.
0: Yeah. Okay. So that's that's what happens. He gets. Yeah.
1: And I, I should mention again that like courts of New York did not at this time really care that someone practiced magic yeah. or ran in occult circles. You're not
0: really hurting uh, anyone.
1: Yeah. And the, like the hysterical witch trials of Salem, uh, were largely buried in the past and the, the prevalence of occult practices and material among New Yorkers at the time was like, it was simply too substantial to really be enforced by most officials like, like we talked about. Mm-hmm. While some historians try to claim that the verdict of guilty or innocent doesn't really matter, I would argue that the testimonies gathered were objectively damning to Joe. <laughs> but I, I disagree that a guilty verdict here is insignificant anyway. Joe was not sentenced as guilty for practicing witchcraft or occultism, but rather knowingly and willingly conning his friends and neighbors for money and resources. Right. Which is incredibly significant, given the rest of the story yes, we're about to tell. No,
0: absolutely. It like, yeah.
1: it has nothing to do with magic. No,
0: there was a he clear was a slap on the artist. hand. Yeah, there's a slap on the hand and a, a a temporary banishment.
1: Yeah, and as should be surprising to you, I or unsurprising to you, I feel like that's going to be like a statement we're going to say more and more. Like, this should not be surpri- uh, surprising to you anymore. <laughs> the church officials, just a few years later. Uh, completely obfuscated these proceedings with Oliver Cowdery, Joe's future right-hand man, claiming that the prophet was, quote, honorably acquitted. <laughs> <laughs> so not a stretch of the truth so much as, you know, outright bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Joseph himself remembered and summed up the entire career as a teenage witch uh, at, with the, with that quote where he's like, I, I went to work for nearly a month without success And I I talked them out of (laughs) I talked them out of continuing this. Mm -hmm. And you know, this 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 weird rumor just started that I was a teenage money digger. Yeah. You know.
0: I can totally I remember doing circuit
1: court judge wrote in his notes that I testified for three this is just rumors, sir, that I told you about. (laughs) Oh okay. Um So
0: that was the court case of eighteen twenty six.
1: Yeah. And he, uh, again, by like simple virtue of the fact that church officials lied to cover up these events uh, to better legitimize Joseph as some infallible prophet, mm. we should, again, weigh this particular court case as one of the defining moments of Joseph Jr.'s life. Like clearly this meant a lot to him and he wanted people to forget it,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which is why I love talking. about it. <laughs> so here, uh, yeah. We're about done. We'll, we'll leave Joe and the Smith family for a while. I've given you the contextual background that will make the rest of the story a little easier to take in. But I imagine uh, some of you might be upset that Joe got away. He skipped bail. He got away with all this. Do not fret because he does this a lot more <laughs> later. This is going to happen more and more. When he returns to this area some years later as a fledgling prophet, some of the neighbors who were, were present at this 1826 trial remember Joe exactly for what he was. And uh, a charismatic con man that duped you know, the courts and his neighbors into thinking he'd given up his old tricks when in reality he just changed the He medium. just
0: learned a bunch of lessons on how to do it better.
1: Yeah. And I just changed a few words. Just. Much like L. Ron Hubbard. We were talking about mm-hmm. L. Ron Hubbard earlier. Mm-hmm. When he was like, I, c- I could make pennies writing fiction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or I could make millions with a religion mm-hmm. much like l ron hubbard Elron hubbard said that a lot that wasn't just one quote like he liked to tell people how smart he was yes. about doing this joe originally did very very much the same he's like i'm gonna make so much money <laughs> um oh
0: yeah and
1: so when he came back to this area in the in an 1830 and
0: he did
1: he uh, – these old neighbors bring Joe back to trial to face the full repercussions of his former career because so they're like, hey, you you got away and, you know, you probably paid off somebody to do it. Yeah. But we remember it and we're going to bring you back on trial for it because okay. you never really faced anything for that. Yeah, And so there's a few more um, testimonies Trials. we'll get into. That because bu- a bunch more of the neighbors testify to be like, hey, he conned me, but he a, conned me, but a
0: later trial, but
1: a later trial. This right. is like okay. we'll get back to some of cool. this. I'm um, excited.
0: Okay, so we've covered the March 20th, 1826 trial with Judge Neely and the Stoll family, and I'm guessing we've got some more adventures.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, but I think for the next few episodes, uh, we're going to take a slight detour, okay, and start doing what I call uh, ten- tangential rants. So where, you're just talking? Yeah, it's just me yelling about something else. <laughs> okay. uh, it's kind of tangential to Mormons, but maybe not exactly. So everyone gets to see what it's like to, to, you? to live
0: my life. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, I was thinking we would talk about the science and power of psychedelic plants and fungi because I realize we've technically done very little in the way of discussing Mormons and drugs in a podcast with that name.
0: Right. But it we did. We were very clear in the beginning that we needed to lay some foundation.
1: Yeah, but technically none of these people are Mormons yet because in the timeline, right. there are no Mormons. And we haven't talked about drugs hardly at all. Well, let's dive into that. So we'll try and remedy that over the next few weeks okay. before coming back to Joe, the would-be prophet, yeah. and uh, the eventual creation of the Mormon religion.
0: Sounds fun. You
1: know. As Bill Shakespeare said, the uh, past is prologue, and we're almost done with the prologue, <laughs> is what I'm saying. Um, yeah, I haven't even really got to the good stuff. So mm. next week, we'll get to the fun drug stuff.
0: Fun Yay.
1: Find us on MormonsandDrugs.com, mm-hmm. the grams of Insta, and uh, the Twitsters. I think it's
0: MormonsandDrugsPodcast.com. Let me look that up we we really quick. <laughs> so professional. Okay, well you can find us on Mormons and Drugs Podcast on Instagram. Uh Mormonsanddrugs.com is the website. And we do have a Twitter, which is I believe also Mormons and Drugs Podcast. At Mormons underscore
1: drugs is our name. We'll get that right sometime. No, it's, well, it's, right. Should, it's right.
0: right. It's right. It's
1: shut up. <laughs> <laughs> right. We'll get it right.
0: It's Mormons and Drugs. Underscore. Mormons underscore drugs. There we at go. We
1: are told I don't know them at all. You're way farther <laughs> than me. I don't know them at all. Toodles. where?